might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. And the people are going to have to attack the pig. The people are going to have to stand up against the pig. That's what the pastors are doing. That's what the pastors are doing all over the world. It's new footage every other day, every bit of it hard to watch I'm talking to my son, he's eight, listen to your pops I said don't fall for the bait, the actions of a few don't reflect the nature of an entire race Maybe the past is full of lessons, but we missed it History shows indeed tension has existed between the two communities But here's a fact, beyond colors we're humans, not just yellow or black like Chris Rock I ain't liberal or conservative inside, I just know the enemy would love to further the divide Media don't care how the story is told, they're more concerned with how the story is sold. Preconceived notions make it harder to see. Together there's much power, rush hour, look at Carter and Lee. Hopefully through dialogue, we'll start to agree. More life for you doesn't make the world darker for me. So hello, welcome to Revolutionary Tracks. Can you all hear me? All right, Marcus. Yep, we're good. Uh, today I'm Marcus. Marcus is me, and uh, we have a very special guest for everybody. Um, it's a it's a special topic, um, and uh, I feel like we have uh, all the representation that this song was speaking about. The song by MC Jin. Uh, featuring Wycliffe Jean, um, whom I didn't know. I was just familiar with the name. I wasn't really sure who he is as an artist. I think Marcus has more um, to say about the artist. But uh, we have uh, all uh, ethnic representation that uh, is there in the song here as well, and we want to talk about this topic. Uh, so how is everybody? Good. Thank you, Amanda, for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really glad to be here, even though I feel I know literally nothing about music or pop culture. So I feel like, um, I don't know, not entirely qualified to be here, but I'm really <laughs> glad to be here with you all. No, so, uh, no, no one's uh, qualified to be here. We just uh, barged in like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the point about the, about the program itself, that like, uh, basically, this is uh, people who are not equipped to be talking about, not keyed into pop culture, talking about pop culture, because that's, <laughs> I think, that's, I think, the the truth about everybody, uh, the average person, really. And like, uh, it, it sometimes like feels almost fake, the extent to which the people who are involved in pop culture are involved in it. So it's like, it doesn't really affect our lives as much as, I mean, for example, the song itself, right? Like, uh, the fact that like, there were tons of songs that seem to have come out shortly after the the atrocious incidents of violence against uh, Asian Americans uh, begs the question of like I mean uh, half of us haven't even heard yeah. of these songs and uh, what do I these songs like, do I don't even know one of them to be honest with you I can't I have no idea of any of them uh, so before we get into all of that uh, Amanda uh, Amanda is Amanda E of course uh, host of uh, Radio Free Amanda cat content only on uh, Twitter. Uh, can you speak a little bit about uh, your show and, uh, you know, the, the concept behind it? Uh, introduce yourself to the audience and uh, to us, too. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, my name's Amanda. Like as you said, my uh, I'm cat content only on Twitter. Um, in, in real life, uh, I'm an organizer against mass brutality or mass incarceration and police brutality. Um, and I also host a podcast called Radio Free Amanda. Um, I've been doing it for about a year now. And, um, you know, like I, my Twitter presence that was started, you know, a few years ago, and I just started talking about um, this particular form of violence uh, against um, Asian Americans, Chinese Americans uh, in particular, and how that is kind of an outgrowth of U.S. militarism um, in the Pacific um, and how that's like been most recently expressed in um, uh, this military aggression like toward China as of, you know, recently. And um, at that time, there was not a lot of people on Twitter talking about that. There are now, thankfully, but at that time, there really weren't. Um, and so I found that a lot of people, um, really related to that. Um, and so at some point last year, um, I decided to, uh, start a podcast to talk about these kinds of things. Um, not just China, but, um, like anti-imperialism in general and, um, geopolitics from, um, an anti-imperialist or Marxist analysis um yeah so yeah that's basically you know, the idea behind my show and the thing is like what one of the most frustrating things too is that you know, even with like this like the slogan of like stop asian hate um mm -hmm. it kind of like locks into a paradigm of uh asians being you know people with a very specific set of physical characteristics from mm -hmm. certain countries that doesn't actually encompass asia um and then, you know, it's like discussing these things. There's a lot of like conflation that can go on. Um, but aside from that, I think you hit on a very, very important thing that, you know, <laughs> from an anti-war, uh, mm -hmm. uh, veterans perspective that I speak on a lot is that, and I've, I've, you see it multiple times is that in one, you know, in one sentence, they'll talk about stopping Asian hate. And then within the next sentence, you know, someone like Joe Biden or the spokespeople will then speak about, having to escalate conflicts yeah. with China. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really think that, you know, the slogan itself, stop Asian hate is very limiting um, because it just kind of places the blame on an individualized like hate, whatever that is. Right. And it locates the problem of racism toward Asian Americans within interpersonal relations and you know that sort of leads us to believe that we can you know quote unquote stop asian hate through individualized solutions that are targeted at individuals um and it's the same idea behind you know like if like people who are racist are just ignorant and um you know you can educate someone out of racism or educate someone out of hate um, and so there's been a lot of focus on the individual in terms of, um, 
you know, who's perpetuating these attacks? Like in, in the media response, there's been a lot of fixation on apportioning individual blame, like fixating on the motivations or criminal histories of the people who have been assaulting the Asian Americans. Um, so in New York City, it's like kind of dangerous because this plays into the pro-cop agenda of Eric Adams, who has been ordering like homeless encampment encampment sweeps across the city and enlisting more cops to kick homeless people off of the subways. Um, so, you know, that slogan, Stop Asian Hate, kind of serves to um, obscure these, uh, you know, this like systemic problem of racism, which has like, um, like kind of like a very much a material basis. It's one that has its roots in this like long military history of um, the U.S. in the Pacific. Like the Pacific is the most militarized region on Earth. It's got like over 600,000 soldiers stationed there. And the purpose of this like U.S. militarism is to occupy and extract cheap labor and resources from these Asian countries. And it's this U.S. militarism that is the greatest purveyor of anti-Asian violence in the world. It's the U.S. military, right? Um, so as you said, like a few minutes ago, stop Asian hate, you know, like politicians will, um, you know, talk about stopping Asian hate and doing things to like uh, end violence against Asian Americans um, in one breath and then in the next breath they'll talk about, you know, like, they'll sort of espouse this, like, really hostile um, aggression toward China. And, um, you know, like, we have people who think that, like, we should basically turn China into glass. And this is, you know, like, this is, um, we don't really ever stop to think about, you know, it doesn't stop Asian hate doesn't really locate the source of the problem, which is this huge military industrial complex, like on the part of the United States, um, because this is this is the source of the problem itself. Um, you know, like uh, one of the things that you uh, brought up in uh, in the in the points that you raised uh, is the excessive. Um, the homeless encampment sweep um, and all the, the particularly New York City problem um, of especially vilifying um, individualized, uh, you know, locating the problem in individuals and like vilifying them and like talking about past crime histories and stuff like that. Uh, in that, uh, on that note, I, I feel like it's kind of important. And uh, I don't know if uh, regular listeners of the show are aware that like uh, we're doing this program on Thursday as opposed to Wednesdays when we uh, usually do it and uh, it was because like you actually had an engagement uh, Amanda that uh, mm -hmm. that I think basically uh, it, it deserves uh, speaking of even even though it's not exactly pertaining to Asian American uh, although like technically he's also an Asian American but who doesn't fit into that bracket of like what people mean when they say Asian American uh, but it's really how I got to know about you uh, is through your, uh, you know, activism and your uh, awa spreading awareness for the case of Prakash or Free Prakash. Uh, can you, like, uh, talk about that case and, like, you know, how you uh, your uh, run into, uh, how you r had your run in with uh, the, you know, NYPD and uh, the New York kind of criminal justice system through this uh, case? 
Yeah, no, I think it definitely um, pertains to this conversation. Um, so I, I've been involved in this campaign uh, to free this young 22-year-old man named Prakash Turman. And um, you're right, we were scheduled to um, do this show, record this show um, last night, but um, I got an inv invitation to his birthday party um, that morning. Um, and so we had to reschedule, but, um, basically Prakash Turman is a Guyanese, um, a Guyanese immigrant from Queens, um, the Jamaica area of Queens. Um, and in December of 2014, when he was just, uh, 15 years old, he was arrested by NYPD. Um, they basically came to, um, his house and in the middle of the night and kidnapped him and they put him in the car and drove him around for a few hours around the city to like disorient him. Um, and then they brought him to the station and, um, they, you know, interrogated him for hours and, you know, he was only 15. He was a really scared kid. And he, you know, of course, was too young to really understand, um, you know, that you should never talk to cops without like asking for a lawyer. Um, he didn't understand criminal justice system. And the cops also basically um, pressured his mother uh, into pressuring him to um, uh, cooperate with the cops. So after hours of interrogation um, and using all sorts of different coercion tactics, the cops basically um, coerced Prakash into a false confession for the murder of his friend, Taquan Clark. Um, Taquan was killed in a botched robbery. And they had no physical or forensic evidence um, against him. Um, there was not, he didn't have any like DNA or whatever at the scene of the crime. The only, uh, evidence that they had against him was this forced confession. And then, um, what they called the ear witness testimony of, uh, Chukwan's grandmother, because she was also, um, in the house during the robbery and um, she didn't. She couldn't see anything because I think she was blindfolded by the people who did it. Um, but she claimed to have heard Prakash's voice at the scene of the crime. So they called it an ear witness testimony, which is ridiculous on its face. So those were those were the only things that you know they had this um, forced confession and this ear witness testimony. Um, and so that really began Prakash's descent into the criminal justice system. And um, he was put into Rikers and he spent the next um, six years between Rikers and another jail, um, four of those years in pretrial detention. And he finally like went to trial in 2018, but um, he was convicted of felony murder, but that charge was later overturned. Um, because the judge didn't allow, they, he wouldn't allow um, an expert on false confessions to testify. And so uh, that led to that charge being overturned. And then um, Prakash was sent back to Rikers um, into pretrial detention again. 
And during this time, um, he, Prakash, would uh, like sit in the law library at Rikers and study law and like try and figure out ways um, that he could, you know, get out of jail um, and clear his name. Um, and he began to organize for his own release um, from the outside, like despite limited resources, like he would call um, radio stations and newspapers uh, with his like phone time. And he would tell them about his case in the hopes that someone would pick it, pick it up. Um, and he began to organize a group of supporters um, on the outside uh, from jail. And um, at some point, he managed to uh, organize his own release. Um, his, um, the supporters uh, crowdfunded his bail. And he was released on house arrest in January of last year, 2021. And so ever since then, um, he has been uh, going to, uh, he'd been going to hearings um, in, in anticipation of his trial. Um, and so I got involved uh, in this case late last year. Um, and we were part of this coalition, which, um, you know, worked with him to really spread, um, spread his story and like talk to people in Queens, talk to members of the community. Um, you know, we would talk to community members, but we would also like employ like a media strategy where we would just like contact, um, a bunch of like newspapers and news stations and like alternative media, left media, and, um, you know, try and, you know, spread the word about his case. Um, and, you know, it, uh, he would seem like every month he would have a new hearing. And, um, you know, he had his last hearing on June 6th, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And this was the hearing where we really thought that they would give us a trial date finally. Um, but, you know, up until June, June 6th was like his 98th court hearing. Yeah, 98th court hearing. And, um, you know, up until that point, there had been a lot of media attention around this case. Um, um, there had been a lot of stories written about him, like in the press, and he was getting more and more interviews. And the judge and the prosecution was taking notice, and they were, you know, I, I think getting like really, really nervous. Um, but on that hearing uh, on June 6th, uh, we found out that the district attorney decided to drop all charges against him, which was the demand that we had been like kind of pushing, um, this whole time. Um, so, you know, this 15 year old kid, he's now, he just turned 23 yesterday. Um, he really didn't know like freedom, um, since he was 15, you know, since 15, he was like incarcerated and then he was put on house arrest. Uh, last year, house arrest is still incarceration. You know, you can't go anywhere. You can't hang out with your friends. Um, you can't go to restaurants. You can't go to movies. Um, and so 
because of the pressure that had been that we had been applying on the district attorney and um, like the public scrutiny like around the DA surround uh, like surrounding this case. Um, we like ended up being able to pull off this victory um, and having all the charges dropped against, you know, this young man. And, you know, ever since, you know, that day a couple of weeks ago, um, he has been enjoying his freedom, his, like the freedom that he hasn't seen since he was a teenager. You know, that that's like, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Marcus. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a, you know, like amazing work, um, but it's just sad, like such a sad um it's a terrible thing and but like that that happens so often you know and like you think of like Rikers Island it's filled mm-hmm. with like thousands of people who have not been convicted of a crime they're only there because they can't afford um can't afford bail um but then as well too like this <laughs> like the, the type of uh uh, over policing and like broken windows policing that you know like New York is face is it's famous for, um, but mm-hmm. you know obviously this is not strict to New York. But um, there's something I did want to say, um, just kind of like breakaway of like um, just to apologize about you know the the asshole is, is saying some some ridiculous shit in the chat and you know um, it is it, it is interesting you know because we're all here going to be talking about, you know, like how stop Asian hate isn't in a really effective way to deal with, you know, hatred and bigotry and attacks and violence within our community. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, just the title still sent, you know, will have people coming in here and, and, and saying all types of shit. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just kind of like a, a yeah, I mean, yeah, you raise a really important point in that Prakash, his case is not unique. You know, his case is only unique in that he managed to um, organize his own support, like, uh, from within Rikers. And he managed to, like, build this movement that, uh, like, coalesced around him. Um, most, there are, like, thousands of other Prakash's right now, like in Rikers. And, um, you know, they're not any different from him. It's just that they don't have the resources to like mobilize for their own cases like he did. Um, but, you know, like I mentioned before, he uh, is from the Jamaica area of Queens. And that is one of the most over police uh, neighborhoods in New York City. Um, it has a really large Indo-Caribbean Carib- uh, Indo-Caribbean population, um, and uh, you know they're like all subject to over-policing um, this neighborhood, along with like neighborhoods like Crown Heights and um, East Harlem, Brownsville, East New York neighborhoods that are like incredibly over-policed, and um, you know we talk about like stop Asian hate. Another uh, limitation of that slogan is that it tends to focus on these like really, um, you know, sensational, really violent attacks against Asian people. And, um, you know, we should, you know, we should uh, focus on them and talk about them. And I do think that there is a crisis 
of anti-Asian assaults going on, but I don't, I'm afraid that just focusing on this kind of obscures this like grinding everyday violence that Asian Americans, you know, go through um, in New York City and, you know, in the rest of the country that we don't really talk about, um, that we don't, that we just ignore otherwise, um, like over-policing um, in Prakash's case, or, you know, poverty, um, incarceration, work exploitation, um, being displaced by gentrification or the threat of eviction. Um, all of these things, um, these issues, these are things that Asian Americans live with um, every day in the city. Like poverty is a really, it's a really huge issue, right? Um, New York City, Chinatown in Manhattan, that's one of the poorest areas in New York City. But an expert can get the resources that it needs because people tend to think, they don't really think of Asian Americans or Chinese Americans as a group that like needs funding or needs help because um, we, we have these stereotypes of Chinese people as like successful or working white collar jobs or like upwardly mobile. But, you know, Asian Americans, um, they're actually like the poorest racial group in New York City. And New York City Chinatown is one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. And, um, and I think you like you raise a really good point of like, because the, the the stereotypes like the model minority that um, many Asian areas like there's that expectation, and so yeah, like poor, un, undereducated, you know, over policed Asian communities, they that just doesn't exist, or mm-hmm. that, that that exists only in China, right? Here here's mm-hmm. where they come for opportunity, and you know it's just this huge lie, and like you know my my um my family's uh, Jamaican. You know, and I was born here, but, you know, and like within that, Jamaica and Jamaicans have, in some cases, sidelined, you know, have been sidelined outside of like kind of like the focus and just really like the black American experience. You know, it's largely like the, 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 the like Bob Barley's cultural um, uh, influence. But at the end of the day, it's just like it just completely obscures the actual reality of most Jamaican Americans, but also mm-hmm. most people in general, right? We are also just talking about a society that is crushing working class and poor people increasingly over time. And this affects different communities in these different specific ways. Um, but like overall, you know, we're all kind of feeling the hurt. And um, yeah, and like you said, sometimes just kind of focusing on this like one thing obscures the actual like problem and like, you know, missing the forest for the trees. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned the model minority myth and, um, if we want to talk about anti-Asian racism, I think it's really important to first talk about this idea of like Asian Americans as a model minority, because it's through the lens of this model minority myth that a lot of people see Asian Americans, like the model minority myth is a white supremacist creation. Um, and 
it was this idea that was developed and gained traction during the Cold War. Um, that you know, the Cold War was a time of like all these national liberation struggles abroad, um, the dismantling of Jim Crow domestically, um, the struggle for civil rights in the U.S. Um, and at that time, also China was expressing support for Black liberation in the U.S. And materially supporting national liberation struggles um, in Africa and investing in their infrastructure, giving them aid and also training their soldiers in China. Right. And so there was um, like like this unity between uh, Africans and Chinese people and the U.S. really saw that as a threat. The U.S. ruling class saw that unification um, as a threat to the do dominant order. So they developed this narrative of Asian Americans as hardworking, family-oriented, and able to achieve upward mobility without making demands for structural change or social reorganization in the way that a lot of um, Black people in the U.S. were doing. And um, one of the like sort of critical pieces of literature um, that really pushed this was the Moynihan Report um, by Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, it was called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. And it was like this policy report um, that he wrote. And it was basically talking about like African-American poverty in the U.S. and um, basically blamed uh, poverty on African-American culture itself. And, um, you know, this idea of um, poor Black people who, you know, just couldn't dig themselves out of poverty um, because of their, like, backwards culture, it was juxtaposed against um, this myth, this model minority myth created of the Asian, of the Asian American who, you know, through hard work and um, um, through hard work and, uh, you know, just through hard work, being able to um, achieve social mobility and, you know, climb that ladder and um, like, like attain success in a way that black people couldn't. Um, so the model minority myth was intended to drive this wedge between black and Asian people, like black and Asian working class, and sort of preclude the formation of radical coalition building across oppre oppressed nationalities. And I feel like um, a lot of people um, sort of recognize that the model minority myth is a white supremacist creation um, and how they recognize how pernicious it is. Um, because it emphasizes certain success stories while eliding, you know, the very real poverty that a lot of Asian Americans face that we were talking about earlier. Um, but um, I think uh, a lot of people have sort of pivoted to what they call East Asian privilege. And so I feel like East Asian privilege is the new model minority myth um, for liberals. Um, and it's like a base like basically repackaged model minority myth. Um, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, it's it's crazy how like uh, as you're saying this, the the comment that we got in the chat is like if Asians are hated so much. I mean, like I don't know. Uh, I feel like we blocked this person from the chat, but we still like uh, are are able to see the chat. Um, it's like someone was trolling the the whole conversation, and I feel like it's kind of you're touching on this point right now, which is the East Asian privilege kind of thing, where uh, there's a whole affirmative action movement, uh, anti-affirmative action movement, or like whatever that is kind of going um, on in the university space where um, Asians are considered to be like kind of, um, they're pitted against uh, especially black students um, as like kind of taking up uh, too many seats in college and stuff like that. And there's like a panic uh, and a kind of... Uh, vendetta campaign against uh, especially Asian Americans because of disproportionately making up um, or seemingly disproportionately, I don't even know the exact numbers, like making up uh, the elite institutions in the United States um, and that's like uh, essentially becoming a, the new boogeyman of uh, saying that this is what's happening and uh, in, in a kind of way I, I do want to, I mean like take this uh, for a second to play this track by uh, an artist named Ruby Ibarra who uh, per- plays, uh, who does this spoken word poem. This is from nine years ago. This is not like recent at all. And uh, it touches on so many points that uh, we have spoken about, uh, which, which we would think is more current. But uh, I mean, like as this song shows, it's not at all. Uh, so let's, let's check this out for a second and uh, we'll return to this conversation. I'll ask you the question about... Uh, you know the 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 myth about model minorities and like reinventing boogeyman's uh, mm-hmm. boogeyman uh, with time. So here is "Hate" by Ruby Ibarra. Again, she asks me, "What is hate?" It's taught 18-year-old boys how to use a gun while in the same field stands five-year-old children who are taught to shoot someone. It's made victims of abuse of fathers to the same to their own daughters. It's made men boost their masculinity by exploiting another's femininity. It's built glass ceilings, internment camps, nooses, and not allowed signs. It's raised narrow-minded babies who maybe they'll never see past their own kind. It controls the school's media through propaganda, teaching us the enemy where we don't question or raise our hand up. Still, she asks me, what is hate? It's caused school shootings, injustice, rape, and genocide. It's made innocent lives die and innocent mothers and wives cry. It screams of words, fuck you, bitch, stupid, and no homo. It's a KKK logo as a history book's photo. It's written Jim Crow laws, ending and removal in the Asian Exclusion Acts. It's just leaving our past, one graves a cage in our path. It's made categories of fears appear, making us wish for nothing, sin, making syllabus to clean the mirrors, playing of your years, 500 years of slavery when oppression, parents failing to give their children direction. It's confessions behind closed doors of elections that politicians never mention. It's the receipt prevention of Filipino better and offension. Stereotypes when dimension, character inventions, all being fucked by white supremacy's erection. So what is hate? It's something that my five-year-old niece can't feel. For her, it's a man-made social construct, so it isn't real. It's an empty word, insignificant, powerless, and nameless. Now I'm just waiting for the rest of the world to follow, so we don't know what hate is. Let's no longer know what hate is. Yeah, but uh, I think in the in the kind of like search for uh, music and uh, in and writing and art that actually addresses the problem, I think the I think the challenge is basically finding something that is able to describe the problem adequately and mm-hmm. even able to locate the the place from which the hate comes. And I think the hate basically uh, the the point that she touches on. This is one uh, one of the artists who actually manages to at least go back in history to talk about the exclusion acts and and so on. And uh, this kind of like, I think, basically, I would like to tie the uh, conversation about uh, 
especially the you know disproportionate presence in universities etc to something uh, of a historical phenomenon like the internment camps and um, the uh, the exclusion act which was especially an anti labor uh, policy so can you can you like speak to that yeah yeah so another problem with this um stop asian hate slogan is that a lot of its proponents they um they sort of locate the solution in this diversity and inclusion uh project and um diversity and inclusion like representation you know is you know for the most part good but it is not a a solution in and of itself right um diversity and inclusion is sort of this it's this ideological project of settler colonial nations to transport transform people of oppressed nationalities and integrate them into the identity of the settler state or the american project um and it does the opposite of building a national consciousness and national unity among asian americans um it breaks up that national consciousness in order to assimilate them into the american project so um in terms of academia you know rather than having um you know our own schools at the level of the ivy leagues um which are historically white institutions um they the ivy leagues oh, sorry the ivy leagues which are historically white institutions they open their barriers and try to integrate certain individuals or certain representatives of the Asian American community. And you know, the military does the same thing in that they actively recruit indigenous and, and black people and it's a way of integrating people of oppressed nations into the settler nation. Um, you know, you know, just look to Lloyd Austin who when he was appointed, he was celebrated as the first uh black head of the Pentagon. even though you know he was also sitting on the board of Raytheon like a major defense contractor right and yeah, then representation matters yeah exactly and then you know of course you have like the new CIA campaigns where they're making videos about how they're much more inclusive and they hire more women of color um etc etc et um and yeah this is like this is the solution that's often um kind of advocated for um from these people who from these liberals who kind of push this stop asian hate slogan right and i and this is where and i don't know this might just be like a more of a like a personal thing cuz like there's difficulties for me you know i've got like there's a lot of black people who think you know obama is a good person you know mm-hmm. uh or you know oh that joe biden is doing something for black people and then they start listing off these individual positions that black people now temporary or are, are, are holding temporarily you know mm-hmm. um and that are just generally not good and like you mentioned Lloyd Austin you know which I talk about often um because in which case that's like the thing like oh hey the first black secretary of defense you know and uh, when when they first announced that he was going to be the secretary of defense i started looking into how many secretary of defense had a relationship you know a direct relationship with the military industrial complex and i started like went all the way back 
at the first actual initial Secretary of Defense because, like, beforehand they had, like, you know, officer of military, whatever the hell, you know, like, different shit. And, it, like, I went through the first ten, all but one, you know, had a direct connection. That well, one that didn't was an oh. actual naval officer. And I was like, okay, that's enough, right? I've seen enough. Mm-hmm. Because it yeah. come, when it comes to, yeah, like, the actual representation, yeah, Lloyd Austin represents exactly who he needs to represent in order to get the job. And that's not black people. Right. And these are like the kinds of success stories that are often like elevated and uplifted um, for non-white people, you know, are these positions that, um, you know, in which they're like assimilated into the American project, the settler state. Um, um, You know, we're always like, you know, like, uh, the first Asian American um, mayor of so and so city is always celebrated. Um, the first, in the case of Lloyd Austin, the first uh, black um, head of the Pentagon. Um, but you know that to sort of tie it back to the theme of the show, that really erases um, this history, this long, really rich history of struggle that Asian Americans have engaged in. Um, You know, there is uh, this like kind of stereotype where Asian Americans are really passive. They don't speak up much. um, They keep their head down. Um, But if you like look at our history, that is very far from the case. Um, And, you know, we always, hear about like the first like Asian CEO of like so-and-so company, the first Asian American um, like mayor of so-and-so city. Um, these are the histories that we learn in school, but we never learn about the history of like Asian American struggle, Asian American struggle against the state. Um, and it was only like within the past few years that, you know, like I started to like sit down and really teach myself that history, you know, like how many people know about the Peter Yu Chinatown protests, for example. Um, This was like the largest um, protest in New York City, Chinatown in 1975. And this was triggered um, by um, the NYPD, they arrested Peter Yu, who had, they saw, he saw these NYPD officers assaulting a 15 year old for a traffic violation. This was like in April of 1975, I think. And so the cops arrested Peter Yu and they brought him back to the station and stripped him down and beat him and charged him with a felony. And this triggered, um, um, this large scale protest where like thousands of people like came out in Chinatown to um, to protest against uh, this police brutality that they had been subject to for so long. Um, you know, we don't know about that. We don't know about like the 1982 garment worker protest in Chinatown, where 20,000 workers, mostly Chinese women, led a strike demanding better conditions from their workplaces. Uh, we never learn about um, Iwo Kun, which is um, this like revolutionary collective in Chinatown that existed in the late 60s and early 70s 
they were largely influenced by the Black Panther Party, and they were formed of, you know, Asian American students, workers, working class youth in general. And, um, you know, they led a campaign to um, create uh, tuberculosis clinics in Chinatown. Um, you know, you never hear about that. You never hear about the Red Guard Party, which is another similar organization, which was formed in San, San Francisco, Chinatown in 1969. So um, this is like all part of our history that we like never really are taught in school. And it's kind of erased in favor of these um, assimilation projects um, and people have that have been assimilated into like the settler project. And, um, you know, that's not even, these things aren't even in the past. You know, I can think of at least three or four different struggles in New York City going on right now where Asian Americans are at the forefront of struggle um, in these campaigns. You know, and I think like one of the, uh, an important thing, you know, to hit is that like, also there's like the extents, like obviously like outside, because you're talking about these like, you know, Asian American struggles that have been going on in the United States in, in just these recent times. But, you know, like, I mean, some of, you know, like the United States' most famous L's were you know, like delivered us by like Vietnam, Korea, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, like, this idea, you know, that, like, oh, it's just these, like, pacified communities. Yeah, I guess pacified communities that, like, kick the shit out of our military. Uh, shrug, you know. Um, but when it comes back to these like labor struggles and everything like that, it kind you know it touches on I think really where you get to the class struggle and mm -hmm. you know the understanding of the reason there's a reason why you don't hear about these types of stories um, and uh, these groups is because you don't hear about those groups and uh, that they buttressed up against you know like they don't like during Black History Month the Panthers you know, are not on, on, on the docket for what's going to be taught. Um, and if it's going to be anything, you know, you get a movie that's centered on the snitch that mm -hmm. got Fred Hampton killed. Um, and so, and I guess, I don't know if that's something I, I guess we like, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. That's how do you see this type of representation in, in media? You know, I know you said you're not like too, too involved, but, um, I mean, like, Karthik and I, we were talking earlier about, you know, you got the movie, like, Crazy Rich Asians, and I think that title kind of, like, speaks to exactly who are the Asians that get, you know, any type of uh, focus, and that's the crazy rich ones, you know, and that's that just replicated against, uh, uh, you know, across all communities. Yeah, go ahead, Karthik. Did you have a question? Did you have something to say? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I, I guess, like, in a, in a kind of way, uh, it, it goes back to your point about uh, labor history and uh, the class struggle and stuff like that, uh, where uh, I, I feel like another Im important dimension, um, especially in reading, um, I mean, I've been plugging the book wherever, whenever I get the chance, but it's also because, like, that's the book that I read the most recently. Uh, I think it's pretty important uh, for at least, like, people in the United States who want to understand the labor history of the U.S. Uh, to get a to get a quick glimpse of it, like Kim Kelly's Fight Like Hell has this uh, these few chapters in which uh, basically it seems as if throughout history uh, they have treated immigrants, no matter where they're from, as essentially a way to undercut um, existing. U.S. labor um, and like basically in this context and, and again like this so beautifully ties into the con concept of like how um, 
Asian Americans are treated as well. It's like uh, even the priority given to someone who assimilates better. Uh, it's kind of like a, an incentive for. Uh, I mean, like even the to to, to talk about uh, the black Asian kind of tensions it goes all the way back to uh, in the 1880s like the washerwoman strike and stuff like that uh, where uh, apparently black washerwomen uh, were pit against uh, pitted against like uh, chinese washerwomen washerwomen who uh, were basically like one was striking and the other uh, the, the the kind of like frictions and solidarity between them like where they one of them were being used as strike breakers and there was like these japanese workers who were being used as strike breakers in uh, Hawaii and stuff like in the cotton farms of Hawaii or, or like sugar or cotton, I'm, for, I'm forgetting. I'm like a very horrible reader as far as details are concerned. But uh, I have to say that like it seems as if um, immigrant labor is always treated as like a sort of strike breaker or as a, as a way to short the labor market to pay, to pay less and like to accept less and like to be... Uh, okay with a, a less dignified portrayal uh, in culture as much as like in the economy itself um, and i think it's true of of culture especially also like i mean one of the things that marcus and i were talking about earlier it's like on the one hand crazy rich Asians, right like the only way asians are dignified or respected is if they got stacks and stacks of money uh, which china seems to be fully aware of and that's kind of how like i feel like china has kind of gained uh, an upper hand especially in in the international stage is by actually playing the u.s's game and like actually beating the u.s in its own game kind of um and uh, on the other hand you have asian american portrayals that are almost singularly like um i mean i hate to use this word but like emasculating um mm-hmm. in the way that like uh I mean, like the the movie uh, that the most comes to mind recently is this "Always Be My Maybe," uh, where basically, like the the protagonist is supposed to be a backup option for a for an Asian woman, and like uh, essentially, that's kind of how I guess like the Asian male is treated, and like the Asian woman is almost entirely, almost exclusively fetishized, and like. Uh, you know, exoticized and like treated as sort of sexual object, uh, objectified, and uh, it's it's just like it's it's all coming back to the uh, to the material point that like um, this is because it's it's seen as like low hanging fruit for the lack of a better term um, that like immigrants are always treated as that and uh, yeah I mean I, I, that's the and and that's the representation that they're willing to give and like basically the struggle becomes to to ask for better representation which in itself kind of i think undercuts the point right like if you're if you're having to ask for better representation then i feel like you're almost already losing the battle yeah um there's a lot to say about this but i just wanted to sort of draw attention to you know the sexualization the hypersexualization of asian women and um you know, how that relates to U.S. uh, imperialism, right? Um, You know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Pacific is like the most militarized region on Earth. And, um, you know, there has been a ton of violence inflicted uh, in Asia on the part of the U.S., you know, like during the Korean War, U.S. dropped like 635,000 tons of bombs over the Korean Peninsula and completely leveled um, the country. 
And the U.S. dropped 2 million tons of bombs over Laos from like 1964 to, to 1973. And it was the most heavily bombed country in history. During the Vietnam War, you know, of course, the U.S. destroyed Vietnam, um, dropped on it uh, more bombs uh, than um they dropped more bombs on Vietnam than all the bombs dropped by every side during World War II. And, um, you know, uh, you, the U.S. U used the Marshall Islands as a nuclear testing ground and treated the indigenous population as guinea pigs for radiation experiments um, between 1946 and 58. So anyway, like there's been a ton of uh, destruction brought by the U.S. in Asia and a lot of times um, during these wars I was talking about earlier, um, you know, these wars destroy entire economies and uh, just break up families. And a lot of times the women um, are forced into prostitution and um, uh, a lot of times they're forced into prostitution serving U.S. soldiers like uh, in South Korea, for example, they had entire encampments uh, of Korean prostitutes just serving American GIs. So, you know, this is really the source of this like kind of hypersexualized, um, passive, submissive woman, Asian woman who really only exists to like sexually serve an American white man, right? And, um, you know, like in order to destroy these countries so uh, completely, you have to dehumanize people first. And so you have like this um, stereotype of the Asian woman as like hypersexualized, and then you dehumanize all the population um, so in order to make them easier to kill. And I feel like there is definitely a direct line here from um, US imperialism's um, dehumanization of Asian American populations and the increased escalation of anti-Asian attacks that we've seen in the past couple of years, right? Because if you look at um, all of the attacks, a lot of them are done in like a really brutal manner, you know, um, Christina Yuna Lee, who was like the 35 year old Korean American woman who was like killed in Chinatown here in Chinatown, um, back in like February or March, uh, a man followed her into her apartment and, um, like forced his way in and sexually assaulted her and stabbed her like over 40 times. And then we have like Asian elders who are, you know, really brutally beat up. Um, there was uh, one case where um, an, a Chinese elder was collecting cans, I think in Harlem or something, and someone came up behind him and pushed him down and just like kicked him in the head until he was like unconscious. And he was hospitalized, but um, he ended up dying from his injuries like a few months later. And then there was like another case of um, a woman who was sweeping her uh, driveway in Queens and someone came up to her and like, you know, beat her on the side of the head with a rock and like knocked her unconscious. 
And she ended up dying of her wounds, uh, you know, a few months later as well. So I think there's definitely, and this is something that, you know, Stop Asian Hate doesn't even touch, is this link between the violence that we've been seeing and this like long history of um, U.S. imperialism um, and the dehumanization of Asian people in general that sort of undergirds that foreign policy objective. Uh, you know, uh, one one thing that I wanted to bring up, especially in, in all of these cases, I think uh, as much as like uh, the absence of uh, discussing U.S. imperialism or like drawing a direct direct line with uh, U.S. hostility towards China is like is missing. Uh, there is also a, an interesting kind of reactionary um, element uh, that is emerging even in uh, some Asian communities where like uh, basically if you are met with this kind of assault, this kind of violence, then um, the the automatic reaction is to like kind of, uh, you know, the same way that uh, New York City used to be uh, full of crime, um, like muggings used to be like a joke on sitcoms and stuff like that uh, all the time. And like uh, then uh, some mayors came along and like they instated like a lot of heavy policing, policing and stuff like that. And that kind of uh, automatically is supposed to have taken care of that problem, etc., is the perception and that kind of leads to now especially among asian communities a a form of reactionary uh, element of like uh, you know some some of them are actually even openly supporting republicans and stuff like that even school choice is another area where like there's a there's a tendency to support uh, republicans in this regard um, and i think that like there is a there's at least a sentiment uh, of um, uh, or, or a tension between uh, the call to uh, abolish the police or defund the police and uh, this ten this inclination uh, to not ask for more policing, but like uh, to kind of see uh, policing as a, as a way uh, to put an end to this kind of violence, which which um, seems to be. I mean, like Marcus and I were talking about how like this is a deficient framework because like police does not prevent crimes or stop crimes, uh, but then that seems to be like the kind of uh, things that uh, some communities, especially uh, Asian American communities are resorting to. Um, and one, one thing that like it's often uh, recently brought up, especially is the, uh, the San Francisco recall of uh, Chesa Boudin is supposed to have uh, some amount of, you know, a significant amount of support in Chinatown and stuff like that. So uh, how do you, how do you speak to this kind of uh, dichotomy of, uh, um, you know, on the one hand, being firmly planting your uh, foot firmly in the in the camp of like that the police needs to be defunded and the police uh, need to have less power. And on the other hand, like uh, there is a there is a rising, at least like among certain voices, um, a call for uh, police intervention to like uh, to to stop these hate crimes. Yeah, that's a really difficult one. Um because as you said, uh, like, you know, studies have shown that like increased policing and increased incarceration don't really prevent more violent crime. Um, I guess, you know, like there are contradictions within the Chinese American community. And I feel like these contradictions, you know, despite them, um, 
we need to, that is the, all the more reason for us to like go in and work with the community and make that intervention. Um, I'm thinking of, um, you know, like in New York City, Chinatown right now, there have been a lot of protests against the borough-based jail plan. So if you don't live in New York City, basically Mayor de Blasio um, a few years ago, he unveiled this plan to close Rikers, um, the jail complex on Rikers, but it would be replaced by um, a bunch of uh, smaller jails across the different boroughs. And one of the jails is a mega jail. It's planned to um, sit, be built in Chinatown. And there have been um, a lot of protests in Chinatown. The people there don't want it. Um, and, you know, like the protesters, you know, they don't want it for different reasons. Maybe some of them are kind of reactionary. But I think, you know, that is like a, a site of struggle that like we can intervene in and we can talk to people and, you know, like maybe like get them to our side. Um, you know, like I just like I think the strategy should always be to sort of focus on these like issues that um, unite like certain you know, certain communities are communities like, um, you know, there are issues which, um, you know, pertain to both like Asian and black communities, like over-policing is one, poverty is another one. Um, we've been trying to uplift the case of Christian Hall, who was this like Chinese adoptee who, I was suffering from a mental health crisis um, in Pennsylvania, and he ended up uh, calling 911, and the cops showed up, and they ended up shooting him. And, you know, through that um, case, we've managed to enlist a lot of people who um, work, a lot of Black people who work um, um, within uh the movement for police brutality. So, I mean, I don't really have uh, like like a really good answer to that, but I I just feel like oh, go ahead. Well, I, I, I mean, I was just going to agree that like there's no there's for any issue of importance. Um, like there's really not going to be any like really good like oh hey just use this quib in in your Thanksgiving Day debates with your family and that'll change their mind about this one topic forever you know that that doesn't exist there's no um, little pill but like what you're talking about is you know about just like engagement with the community over uh, certain resentments and, and and like you said like there could be I could see someone disagreeing with you know a borough plan for a myriad of reasons um, that, you know, are, <laughs> could be, you know, more harmful or less harmful uh, than others. Um, but and yeah. it's like, I remember hearing about that, 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 you know, the, the plan to have them like break up Rikers into these, into the smaller jails, into the boroughs. Um, and so, I mean, like, I'm kind of curious of like what, 
what do you think of that plan? And like, really, at the end of the day, you know, like coming from an evolutionist evolutionist standpoint, it's like, oh, well, if you break the little big rock into tiny rocks, is it easier to break up the tiny rocks than? Oh no, um, no, a jail is still a jail. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Right. Um, so. I mean, the problem isn't Rikers itself. The problem is mass incarceration. And, you know, even if you break up Rikers, of course, is like terrible jail. Um, its conditions are deteriorating, but it's like it's a manifestation of capitalism, right? Mass incarceration is a one hundred and eighty two billion dollar a year industry, right? Um, so even if you close Rikers, that industry will still exist. And it's an industry which is sort of sustained by, you know, all of these different prison profiteers that make money off of people being incarcerated. You know, I'm talking about the bail bond industry, um, which like in New York City alone um, makes between like 14 to 20 million dollars a year. Um you know, we're talking about like specialized phone companies that um, provide services to prisons, which is also like another multi-million dollar industry. We're talking about commissary vendors that sell um, goods to incarcerated people, which is like another source of profit for these corporations. And on top of that, like the ACLU just released um, a report last week that said incarcerated people produce like $11 billion of services and goods a year. So on top of like all of these corporations um, making profit off of uh, like incarcerated people, incarcerated people also act as um, like a low wage labor force or like someone even called like a slave labor force um, producing all of these like $11 billion worth of goods. And how much of that money do they make back? Um, The study said it was something like 11 to 50 cents an hour that they make. So you can close Rikers, but the problem, uh, you know, the problem is mass incarceration and um, the problem is capitalism. Um, because all of these money, all of these companies are making money off of like this incarcerated population. And that's still going to exist, even if you break up Rikers into like, I don't know, five or six mini jails spread across the city. Yeah. And I mean, to your point of, uh, you know, some of the people who refer to uh, um, labor and prisons as slavery labor is uh, the U.S. Constitution. Um, yeah. Because it's the last place slavery is legalized, and uh, of course, <laughs> corporations will take advantage of the cheapest, um, uh, yeah, che- cheapest population of labor that they possibly can. Um, and whether it's in prison in the population or through, you know, like deals like NAFTA, where you can close down factories and ship them off, and all these things, you know, it's always going to find the, you know, it's either going to find or create a you know, cheap form of labor to exploit. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, this is why, like, we can't really, this is why we can't rely on politicians for reform. Because what is the solution to this? Well, it's like building an alternative system that prioritizes 
prioritizes poor and working people over profit, right? Because as you were saying, capitalism, you know, it leaves black and brown poor people unemployed and they serve as a reserve army of labor in order for employers to keep wages low, right? And then it's this population that's then surveilled and harassed and then they're like arrested by racist police and then they funnel all those people into this multi-billion dollar prison industry. So this is, so um, crime and unemployment, criminalization of poverty, those are all essential features of capitalism. And so, you know, this is why we can't really rely on the state to reduce rates of mass incarceration. And any sort of victory against the system will be led by the people, it's, by the people themselves. And, um, you know, like, you know, tied to tie this all back to Prakash, you know, the Queen's DA didn't drop the charges against Prakash out of the goodness of her heart, or she just had like a change of heart or something. It was only through public pressure and mass mobilization and pressure of the people um, that like forced her to respond. Um, you know, like, uh, I think, I think basically uh, th this, this brings us back to something that you said uh, earlier when we were, uh, you know, when, when um, I, we had invited you to the, to the show and like, we basically, I, I had asked you, um, that like you know there's this about this tension between uh within the community about how to handle this and like there's been calls uh, a more reactionary kind of like calls for more policing and stuff like that and the thing that you brought up is uh, the extent to which um your connection to organizing and community organizing kind of uh, dictates how um you approach policing itself and like uh uh, you you spoke about how like the reactionary elements especially do not have uh, as much of a foothold in uh, or or as, as much of a presence in the grassroots and uh, they're kind of like talking in the air a little bit uh, and this seems to be the nature of like uh, reactionary politics in the first place where like um, especially in the present day uh, there seems to be a lot of vilification of uh, organizers um, as people who are like you know kind of detached from reality or something like that when it's in fact like the people who are not organizing who seem to be detached from reality um, and and it seems like there's like a finger pointing game on, on you know everywhere where it seems like um, if you are not organizing or if you're a, if you're just a person who's living in a in a community like let alone a gated community you seem to like just they seem to be content with pointing their fingers at uh, someone who's organizing and saying uh, the only reason why you have this demand is because like you are in a hyper specific exclusive little bubble um and uh, the the people who organize on the other hand are able to kind of more rightly i would say point out that like the reason why uh, the solutions or like the the complaints that are raised by the people who don't organize is because like they have no tether or no grounding in actual reality and they're just reacting out of just sheer knee-jerk panic um, so uh, especially within the asian american community how do we you know bridge this uh, gap between especially someone who's like a more middle class or like a more um, even upper class person who just like uh, puts out a politician like I mean Andrew Yang even comes to mind as a as a person who uh, kind of like uh, would be more on the on the side of like a more reactionary element uh, rather than someone who actually respects uh, on ground organizing as something that uh, actually has a lot of 
uh, value and like is actually more connected to reality than someone who's uh, saying just like put more cops on the street. So, sorry, uh, are you asking how we should... Um like address the divide between you know the more reactionary elements oh, okay. being detached from organizing and uh, and how like uh, someone who's organizing um can essentially tackle this almost like an anti-intellectual it's it's type of like an anti-intellectual movement but it's directed towards organizing organizers as like saying you're you're all like folk, your priorities are all twisted because uh, only because you're uh, you you only care about what you're working on etc and like that that should not be dictating the world view um and like and i feel i find that this seems to be a, a kind of uh, a trope almost uh, in the present day and i feel like there needs to be an addressing of this divide yeah i mean i don't really know like i don't think i'm familiar with that um that line of thinking i mean i i guess i'm not really like familiar with this sort of ire um, directed at organizers, but um, I mean, in my experience, the only way to get people to respond is to, um, is through organizing, through mass mobilization, talking to community, community members, base building, um, because politicians, they will only respond through public pressure. Like in the case of Prakash, um, the district attorney, Melinda Katz, like she held off for so long um, uh, on dropping Prakash's charges. Um, but the only thing that made her respond was uh, we like essentially like backed her into a corner and we had created this um, enough, you know, public scrutiny uh, on her and the NYPD um, in such a way that if she like continued with this case and like pushing it into trial, it would have been political suicide for her. Um, and, you know, like if she had pursued it into trial, it would have erupted into a nationwide scandal. And so, like, she had no choice but to drop the charges. So, um, so I'm not really sure, like, um, I guess, like, I feel like, like... Organize, organize, organize. Yeah, yeah. organize, <laughs> organize, organize. Um, I don't know, like, I just feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, like, these kinds of crazy like weird takes on Twitter um and I feel like if your view of politics is like primarily informed by Twitter then um you get like a really distorted view of you know how the world works um which is why like it's so important to like step offline and really like engage in your community um because like if you just like engage with politics just through Twitter, then it's really easy to kind of get like a really nihilistic view of the world um, and just think that nothing that you could do could possibly change anything. Um, because, you know, like if you're on Twitter 
you're just like really atomized. You're not like around people. Um, uh, and you know, you just like get like a really distorted view of the world. Um, but any sort of change that you want to implement, you have to keep this sense of revolutionary optimism. Like you, in order to like demand any sort of change, you have to believe against all odds that, um, you know, victory is possible. Um, even if you doubt it in the, in the back of your mind, you have to move like victory is possible and you will achieve victory. Um, because you know, that's like, yeah. there's really no other way. <laughs> no, that's like, you have to keep that. You have to maintain that sense of revolutionary optimism. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's something that, like, um, it's kind of like a hard thing. It's like, in for someone, you know, it's like, yeah, like, I, I remember you like, even like first, like, Oh crap. Like my government doesn't care. Right. And it's like the months and years after that, like initial, like, wait a minute. It's very depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you pay attention, you recognize, you know, how things are happening and, uh, current events and all that type of stuff. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to stay positive in in uh, these types of scenarios. And even if you understand, like things like with the climate crisis, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of things are going to get worse. Acting think, doomer, though, right? Is is yeah. is parallel to just being counter revolutionary? Yeah, I if think all you're going to say is this isn't going to work, this isn't going to work. Well, then go join the CIA. Yeah, I think it's hard to stay positive. Um, if you're, I think it's definitely hard to stay positive if you're like engaging politics primarily through Twitter and you're alone in your room and, um, you, uh, you know, just scroll like for hours. That's really, it's really easy to develop a nihilistic worldview like that. Um, but I will say, um, if you like step offline and you like work with people, cause like, most people, a lot of people don't really talk about like organizing on Twitter because it's not, it's not super exciting. It's slow moving. It's kind of, um, it's kind of a slog and, you know, a lot of it is just like very unsexy work. Um, and it's not super exciting, but you know, you through organizing, you do achieve like these like small victories which sort of give you a boost. Um, and it like maintains your own hope, uh, in achieving victory. And it's like these very small victories, you know, like maybe getting, um, you know, another organization to sign on to your campaign or like getting, you know, like a news station to grant you an interview. It's these small victories that add up and make the larger victories possible, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, We just wanted to say that, like, we're open to calls. I don't know how much more time you have, Amanda, but, like, uh, if anyone of the audience wants to talk to us with any of your questions, please feel free uh, to to call in. Uh, After all, that's what this app is mainly about. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Um, yeah. And I just want to like go back to the point about, uh, you know, intercommunity organizing. You know, I think back to this, um, uh, a couple nights ago, I went to the like meeting for the rent guidelines board. And, um, basically in New York city, like you have like two different kinds of apartments, uh, half, about half are like market regulated apartments, which means they're like market rate. And then you have like rent, uh, rent stabilized apartments, which means that there are like certain regulations on how much that the landlord can increase rent, um, every year. And so how much they're allowed to increase rent is determined every year by this rent guidelines board, um, which meets every year. And anyway, a couple nights ago was the annual meeting and the board was expected to raise rent from like four to 6% on these rent stabilized apartments. And, um, you know, this angered a whole lot of people across New York City because, you know, like we're still in the middle of a pandemic. People have been laid off. They don't have jobs. They're already like um, being confronted with the threat of eviction. And so working people cannot afford like a, f- a four to six percent increase on their rent. And so like I ended up going and, um, you know, like maj- there were like so many people there, like at least a hundred. Um, but, um, they all went in and sat on the meeting and they disrupted, uh, the board while they were like trying to vote on this rent increase. And, you know, majority of the people there, like were not white. You had people from all across New York city. Um, you know, a lot of them were Latino, a lot of them were black and a lot of them were uh, Asian Americans. And a lot of them, like they were tenants and tenant organizers from Chinatown, which is right now, you know, um, being threatened with like these forces of gentrification. And so a lot of people are really like being threatened with eviction and displacement right now in Chinatown. And so, you know, this is like another side of struggle where, um, you have like this, like multinational, um, coalition working together against, you know, this like thing that they're all fighting together. So these, I, these are like sort of the struggles that I want to uplift that people can really like intervene in, you know, if they're really interested in, um, you know, like stopping Asian hate or whatever, because, you know, gentrification and displacement and eviction is like a major problem that's affecting Asian American communities. And it's like a very material thing. And, um, you know, like if you are interested, this is like another side of struggle that like you can definitely like take part in. Yeah. I mean, like you hit it earlier and this is something that we, kind of like it always comes back to capitalism you know it's like um that 
you know, like a, a way to actually like a focus on the issues, um, and then also do you know like broad coalition building because um, as that I think it's, I think it's still like something that I kind of like struggle with now is that in some cases there's not necessarily people like that need to be convinced you know there's not many more people that need to be convinced that the rent is too damn high. You know, these people just need to be organized and then mobilized. There's not too many people that that don't already agree that healthcare is, you know, unattainable. You know, like now, how do you, how do we <laughs> organize people, you know, around those things? And and also too, and, and which is like I think what you're saying is, so, is something like very very important is that it's it's important to like try and cross cross coalition building mm -hmm. um, exactly because that's the overarching layer is what we're missing right that's that overarching yeah. layer is something that there's a lot of people who think they're covered with it you know the overarching layer of the democratic party but that's not true right and like mm -hmm. there's people who are feeling that truth but they're not understanding it and so that over like creating that nice overarching you know group cross coalition uh, or multifaceted coalition that actually you know can can go from one to like really applying pressure advocating to wielding power in of in of itself um yeah and that yeah you know and that yeah. takes really taking out of the focus of how do i stop asian hate to you know how do i make sure that not only asian americans but everybody is not feeling the Ill, ills of capitalism that are sometimes sharpened due to racism, misogyny, you know, X, Y, and Z, all the other things. Yeah. I mean, you brought up a really great point, which is, you know, the problem is not necessarily like a lack of like good ideas of like convince, needing to convince people that um, we should demand healthcare or like demand tenant protections. The problem is a lack of organization. Um, and I guess I want to, you know, sort of bring it back to like Twitter and being online. Um, I, I think like the most important, most crucial thing that we sh we can do right now is to get organized join an organization, join a party and build power and like continue to organize because um, this is, I mean, like we can build, we can create podcasts and we can like create Twitch streams and uh, don't get me wrong. I don't think like social media is a bad thing. I think social media is necessary in 2022 and, um, you know, social media is necessary for organizing in 2022. But the, these kinds of like this media apparatus and social media and Twitter, I think it should complement and uplift the organizing that you're already doing um, and that's already going on. But social media is not the um, it's not the primary site of struggle. All right. Like your organizing should not be happening solely on Twitter or social media. The primary side of struggle is still offline and social media should only exist 
to sort of uplift what you're already doing. Yeah. And like, this is something, you know, I, I just, just to hit it again, because I think it's, it's something that like people really need to understand, you know, is that, and, and, and really too, is that you can do a shit ton of valuable organizing from, you know, behind a computer, a, a computer, but that work on that computer needs to affect people within like the one to two mile radius around where you live. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily have, you know, work on Twitter. If you're working on spreadsheets or, you know, sending out emails or, you know, you, you know, like there's a lot of work you could be do, you could be doing and you're at a desk or, you know, you're using like a you know computer or whatever, but these things need to have effects on your community. And that online community, like the real world community. And yeah, if, you, if you're not doing that, like, you know, that's not to say, find things that entertain you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> find things that make you happy, find things that give you joy, you know, but it needs to be understood that some, like that those things are engaging in those things are not like, that's not organizing. That's not, you know, being part of the, the revolution, you know, it's just kind of watching someone who, you know, may agree with you, right? But it needs, mm-hmm. which is all good. I like that seems like <laughs> I make my money off of it. Uh, <laughs> but I consistently say, I, I, you're not going to be able to follow me. Like, you know, this is just, uh, this is what it is. We're here just talking. It's an online thing. But you need to go out and, and affect your community because that's the most important thing that I do, regardless of, how many retweets? The most important thing any of us can do is affect our community for for the positive. And yeah, I don't know. I just agree one hundred percent with what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, just to reiterate that, like you know, if anybody wants to call in, feel free. The calls are open. Um, I think, uh, yeah, uh, we are taking calls. Uh, one thing that I for. Uh, forgot to mention which uh i think like basically we even clipped it and uh, wanted to play it but i guess like you know because you kind of covered it in the conversation itself in in different form um is uh, a form of orientalism that uh, you spoke about in one of your uh, podcasts uh which is uh, the modern form of orientalism against asians is a techno orientalism which i really liked as a as a coinage um where uh, the asians are considered backward because of how superior they are which is a, kind of like a, an interesting thing to square especially because of how robotic that they have become that like or something where uh, you're communal to the point of like the individual kind of no longer um having any value and uh, that's supposed to all because like you've the Asians are supposed to have dehumanized uh, themselves Um, so now like the world feels like it has the west especially feels like it has the permission to dehumanize Asians uh, not treat individuals as like valuable because um, Asians don't uh, you know seem to value themselves as individuals or something like that which is I think it's a very fascinating outlook where uh, it's almost like they're treating Asians, especially uh, abroad, um, as almost like ants or something or like as some sort of menace or something like that, rather than as like people, yeah. uh, which I thought was a very salient point. And I, I it's, it's, it sucks that we can get to that. But uh, you did cover that in a, in a different 
way and like you spoke about that uh, in your in different words just not using that uh, expression which i wanted to just like share with the audience i think it's a pretty phenomenal way to look at it yeah yeah um so uh, i didn't coin the term techno orientalism i'm not sure who did but it's like one of these like you know um things that some academic came up with but um it's it's applied to China quite a bit. Um, so Orientalism, it's, you know, this sort of thing that treats the East as backward and primitive and fixed and unchanging. And it's, um, it's like a very popular way of looking at the Middle East and China, uh, the Middle East and Asia, I should say. But I would say that um, with China's rise and like its technological advancement, it's, um, it's, it's the way that it's looked at would be more sort, sort of like a techno-Orientalism, which is like kind of the opposite in that the East is too advanced, too technologically superior and too robotic. And it's like technologically advanced to the point where people's humanity and individuality are no longer recognized. And in the West, we have this idea um, because of capitalism um, needing to produce like an individualist ideology. We have this idea that it, it's the our individuality. It's the very thing that makes us human. And so the West sort of has like this perfect balance of like technologically advanced, but still uh, we still maintain uh, our humanity. And um, uh, this was like sort of discussed in the, um, the Beijing Olympics episode with Charles Xu of Child Collective. And um, I sort of talked about the way that this like techno orientalist media coverage had really ramped up um, in light of the Beijing Olympics because, um, uh, you know, uh, one example I used was the press constantly um, invoking the specter of the Chinese worker in the hazmat suit. And they do that because in these hazmat suits, Chinese people, they look like robots. They become like totally unrecognizable. You can't identify them. They don't look human. They just look like uh, automatons or something. And, you know, Karthik, as you said, for a lot of Westerners, it does stoke a particular fear about, you know, how this ideology of like communalism, how it's prioritized in this extreme way, such that all individuality and humanity are lost and we're no longer human. So, um, techno-Orientalism, uh, you know, it says that the East is technologically advanced, but culturally backward. And because of that, the people are emotionless and unfeeling. Um, but, you know, like Orientalism, it still suggests something that's like dangerous about the East, um, that's unfamiliar about the East, that could threaten Western civilization um, if we don't keep it in check, um, because this is, this is like, this is why techno, techno orientalism is like, um, 
why it's invoked. It's, it always stokes a particular fear about, you know, like we could become them, you know, they could, they could take, they could take us over, you know, like it stokes a particular fear about, um, you know, China hegemony and like global takeover by China. And if that happens, then we lose our sense of individuality. We lose our sense of humanity and we just become like unfeeling robots like the Chinese. And it's, it's such a like, and I mean, it all drives to, you know, one narrative. And I think like, we kind of like started at the, the beginning, you know, this, um, they'll say stop Asian hate, but then, oh, hey, remember, China's going to invade Taiwan and they're, mm-hmm. we've got to deny Huawei from, from, from being able to sell things because they're taking over. And like, all you know, it's like, it immediately goes into this thing. And one, like, one of the things that I've seen over and over again, especially through, through the pandemic is, you know, this like, it's uh, the, the, the New York Times headline, China shuts down city of 2 million people to stop, mm-hmm. you know, COVID spread, dot, dot, dot. But at what cost, you yeah. know? And it's like, what do you, what do you mean? What cost? We, mm-hmm. there's a, over a million Americans that died. Mm-hmm. That's the cost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been really remarkable to see like how the, how the U.S. and U.S. media has been coping with um, China's success in um, in just uh, managing COVID nineteen, right? Um, every step of the way, uh, you know, China's strategy was undermined, and um, you know, the U.S. would say, "Like, oh, China, they're lying about their numbers." Um, they are impeding on people's human rights to freedom of movement. Um, but you know, like, you know, if I'm sort of optimistic about the future because in the past two years, I've sort of seen this turn in the way that people think about China, you know, um, in the past couple of years, because of the COVID pandemic, we've seen like a million deaths so far um, compared to China, which, you know, has, you know, they haven't really had like that many like deaths at all. And they've been really successful at containing this. So um, I don't know, like, I, I just feel like, like people are starting to question, you know, the, U.S. Um, like line on everything, um, and that extends to like its foreign policy on China. We are seeing, you know, you know, like the war drive, like in Ukraine, like in uh, like in Ukraine, is pretty strong. But I'm also seeing a lot of people like sort of question that as well, and sort of put that in the context of you know war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and, you know, like sort of question why the U.S. is like sending weapons to this country, like billions of dollars every couple of weeks when we have no baby formula here, um, people don't have health care, 
people are dying from treatable conditions because they can't afford healthcare. People are getting evicted. People like can't put food on the table. People are losing their jobs. So I think, you know, things, you know, and I don't, I don't want to get into, you know, a debate. I do have to correct one thing. There are some people in the United States that are getting health care. Today, Joe Biden administration announced that uh, victims of Havana syndrome will be receiving one to two hundred thousand dollars. Amazing. So, Amanda, <laughs> it's really unfair of you to say that some people don't get health care in the United States because obviously you know, the real, the real problems are being taken care of. I'm so glad that so many people are, are getting healthcare <laughs> for this completely made up condition. <laughs> just, exactly. Right. Just, I just I do the dizzy bat for 10 minutes and then show up uh, at, at the state department and say you have Havana syndrome. I mean, day after a hard night of drinking, effect. basically you go out, yep. you go out drinking and the next day you get $200,000 worth of healthcare. Basically. I should be sitting in a lot more health care than I currently am if that was the only case of getting blackout drunk and then waking up the next day. Um, but I think that's like, and that goes, I think, just more of like a ridiculous thing to, to your point, you know, and, and not only that, like, the United States doesn't have these things, but it's like the constant pushback from not only the people of power, but a lot of people just who have been propagandized to the point you know, believing that good things are bad things. Um, and, and when it, like how China is discussed, how Vietnam right now is discussed, mm -hmm. like is, is part of the reason. Um, because again, yeah, even when it gets into like, no matter what, oh, their technology advanced, but oh, they, they it's so much so they, they, hive minded society they, themselves, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they got too technical, too quick. Now no one is an individual, which is like absolute fucking nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. Oh, they shutting down the whole city so that people survive and live. But at what cost? Then we can't get the chips and the PlayStations aren't fucking shipping and all these things. And, you know, within the United States, you've been propagandized to really not give a shit about anyone across the world, but really, really care about that two-day shipping yeah 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 and Absolutely. like yeah that's something you know i don't know like it just it says it all right there about what type of society the united states government you know is is, is setting forward when havana syndrome is getting 200k when people asking for 10k in student loan debt that's too much yeah 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 so uh i mean uh if you are not uh, interested in calling us and talking, we would be wrapping up soon. So just another reminder that, okay, this is oh, the troll. This troll guy again. <laughs> yeah. Is this the guy that was leaving the weird... I mean, I haven't looked at the comments, but was this the guy you were talking about who was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, been, it's been crazy, actually. I don't even... I mean, I, I can't even take this seriously because this is comically exaggerated, um, and <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, like uh, the, the, you you catch like uh, basically somebody like this. Um, I mean, the troll in me kind of wants to take this call, but I feel like I don't want to subject 
you to this uh, at all. I feel like this is a very I mean, unnecessary. It's totally your decision. No, no, um, no. I, you know, I can probably take it if you decide to take this call. No. I think it would be like kind of entertaining if anything else, if, you know. I would. I'd rather not. I've okay. had a full of trolls today. If that's okay, I'll be the one to say no. No, no. I can just fuck off. <laughs> sure, um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I do think it is kind of amazing that, you know, uh, this is the first, This I think this is like kind of the first episode where we've had such adamant, um, adamant troll. Um, so I don't know if that says anything or, or we just got lucky. Shit, about the, the topic really night. yeah the topic yeah, is basically attracting this kind of energy and i don't like it just sucks so much i mean like uh in in one in one sense like it uh, i guess like it it points to uh how important it is to be talking about this uh in the first place because uh it is like kind of really important to be talking about this because even in a gathering that's supposed to be extremely constructive such as uh, a this app and like people wanting to actually tune in to listen and uh, if anything contribute with something constructive there is a moron like this who wants to like basically pretend to be somebody and like uh, all sorts of shit and like create and again that that's uh, thank you DJ Elrad uh, for pointing this out creating like four different accounts to like do this and it's like yo man come on wait four different accounts this guy has been trolling the last two hours under four different yeah, accounts yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah i mean what can i say like I, I i do appreciate the the kind of and now we actually have a, a caller who i feel is not a troll <laughs> at least hasn't trolled yet uh, i mean i'm just joking i guess like we'll take this caller and uh does anybody else please uh, f- uh you know line up in the queue we we do have to be closing soon like it's 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 been a great conversation it's we've gone gone on for a while uh, i hope uh, you know we haven't exhausted you amanda one sec no this has been a great conversation yeah i've really enjoyed it sonia you're on uh, unmute is on the bottom right Hi. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed uh, the conversation, too, and really agreed with um, pretty much everything you guys had to say. Um, And I'm sorry you guys had to deal with this troll. (laughs) Oh, no. Thank you for calling and thank you for, you know, not being a troll. You know, it's like it is what it is. You know, it's like this is. is, Yeah. You know, and like that's like online trolls are just it's only new because of I guess online, like that's the only yeah. novel thing. And I feel you know? like I I should bear like some sort of responsibility for this because I I feel like I don't know ten percent of my I retweeted the link to this call in show before the show started, and I feel like ten percent of my followers are like these weird trolls that just like sort of lurk on my Twitter and just wait to make these like really weird or racist comments. And so I feel like, you know, I brought them into the room today and I'm really sorry for that. <laughs> well, it's not like you're sending them the invite. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> asshole who always talks shit to me. Just to remind you personally, I'm going to be on the show. You know, like that's not happening. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Although to the trolls, like the only one thing that's like they feed the algorithm. You know, it's like a lot of times, too, it's like even if you just ignore them, they're going off. Mm-hmm. Like, 
thanks for the viewer. You know, thanks for the one extra audio <laughs> or, the, or the four, apparently the four different uh, accounts that you, you, you listen to this. Our, our masters are calling are going to be happy with us that our average ticked up by 2%. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, trolls. Um, but sincerely, and I don't know if Sonia, if you had any, you know, other questions or anything like that, but like, thank you for just calling and, and saying nice things. <laughs> um, we really but, appreciate uh, the support. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, Sonia. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really have anything to say or any questions. I just wanted to show support. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you. You have a good night and a happy Friday. Uh, but um, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on. And I really, really enjoyed it. Like, having this discussion. And, um, and uh, also, I just do, do want to point people to your show, Radio Free Amanda, um, in which case you have a laundry list of really deep dives, intellectual conversations uh, about a lot of different subjects. But they also do, you know, oftentimes kind of tie into um, some policy with China, uh, mm-hmm. the, the United States foreign policy as it regards to the Pacific. Um, because, yeah, and like you're, you talk like enormously intellectually about uh, a lot of things going on with like the military industry in, in, in the Pacific and um, which is something that I talk about as well. So yeah. um, appreciate everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, uh, I feel like, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I feel like I'm getting like a little bit sick. So I'm sorry if I was like, um, a little bit disoriented in the beginning. It's not COVID. I took a COVID test yesterday, so it's not COVID. So I'm just, but, um, yeah, uh, I guess I just want to plug my show, Radio Free Amanda. You can check it out on Patreon or Spotify. Um, and, you know, there are like a few free episodes, unlocked episodes there that you can check out. And if you like those episodes, then, um, yeah, you should subscribe because, um, you know, that's like my main source of income right now. So I'd really appreciate it. But I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me on. Um, you know, two hours. Wow. It just went by. It flew by. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you uh, had that uh, experience because like, you know, it's always nerve wracking when something, uh, something goes over for long. I mean, I start looking at the clock and I'm like, man, do, does the guest have to leave? But we have so many questions. We still have to like ask them. Um, uh, but I have to say, uh, I mean, like it's, it's, it was so illuminating, especially the kind of work that you're doing in the community. I mean, like some of the stuff that you said, I wasn't even aware that you were doing. And I'm really glad that you uh, were uh, here to talk about it. Um, I just wanted to say also that uh, we're going to be live tomorrow um, at 3 p.m. Uh, with... Um, Richie uh, Sarjenko. Richie Sarjenko. Sorry, I forgot the name. No, his name's uh, difficult to pronounce. Um, <laughs> But we're going to be talking about uh, how the, I mean, on a related note, which is what, like, it it was very, um, you know, unforeseen that, like, it kind of lined up like this. But, like, we're going to be talking about how uh, uh, the L.A. newspapers, like, were so quick to declare that, like, all of this, uh, the the defund the police uh, messaging was, like, the reason why, like, uh, you know, centrism won in L.A. and, And just basically that they didn't fucking wait for the votes to get counted. That's what it seemed like. Uh, so we're going to be talking about all of that and like, uh, and, and Richie is always like a great, uh, person to talk to. We've had, we've had him on a couple of times on Twitch. 
uh, and this is going to be the call and debut so do tune into that and uh, as is the ritual always like we're going to be uh, closing with uh, a song this is a song that i actually uh, thought was kind of a cool song like it it did like uh, it's it's basically model minority stuff but uh, it's by this uh, musician called Alan Z from Atlanta um and it's a collaborative track i think like there's three people on it and uh, i thought that it was basically a fun song at the end of the day it was like uh, an easy listening um kind of almost like a pop as uh, marcus likes to say uh, so thank you for tuning in marcus you want anything to add thanks for hanging out um and have a good night all right so here is model minority I'm sick of people believing that we got privilege and we're passing as white When that's the myth fabricated to combat civil rights Pit us against the black and brown and means to divide and dehumanize Like see them shanks, see them with fine Just to justify the various slurs Model minorities, not a portrait It's an Asian caricature So uh-huh. help us together as parody work Before you call us wealthy Let's talk about our income disparity first So I ain't claiming that we're white adjacent The white races, they ching chong Send the eyes of Asians Bamboo ceiling, block of high positions, higher wages They hired us centuries ago for only migrant labor My God, they hate us from the Chinese exclusion Next to the Harsala Act Where they let us sent to be pawns as part of the track Silence our issues like it's in the past We ain't got no political power or media coverage Where's the privilege in that? Huh? If you only knew Shoot.